Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have you guys here as well. Good morning, Brian. Morning, Brad. And Philip. Good morning, Brad. And Bob. Good morning. Dustin's out again today. Sorry he couldn't be with us, but we've got a, a couple good topics to talk about. I mean, you always got to like one that leads off like this. We're going to talk about warts and ringworm, which I know everybody's been dying to hear about. Oh, yeah. Right? That's in the news all the time. Uh, benefits of artificial insemination, which we've talked about a little bit before, but I wanted to dive into a couple other areas there. And then as we get into the breeding season, what are some of the causes and preventions for early preg pregnancy loss? And we'll, we'll talk about those as we go through. But before we get into those topics, I, I wanted to ask you guys, do you sometimes see things that you just can't quite comprehend because, and, and sometimes those things happen on the ranch. So this morning, uh, one of my boys is getting up and I've seen all of them do this. They're getting up to go out to do chores and their boots are there and they walk down shorts and a t-shirt barefoot, slip on their boots and go outside to do their chores with boots and no socks. Is it just me or does that mm -hmm. seem not right? They do it with both rubber boots and, and cowboy boots. If you're, wondering that part of the question uh, i've got to be a sock guy I, i'm not i'm not doing boots without socks no i get i don't know i oh, can oh, do, philip philip does well philip i don't do it i don't do right it now. i don't yes i have on socks right now <laughs> i don't do that often but i can slip on a pair of rubber mud boots you know without socks on that doesn't bother me but i cannot stand to wear a pair of tennis shoes without socks on this is a deep topic today. yeah you really yeah, came better, up with a good better one. get into this one a little bit <laughs> i you know i think I, I can go without socks. It's fine. I don't normally, but it depends on what I'm doing. If I'm just running out to kind of throw some hay and stuff, fine. I Yeah, whatever's quickest. But if, if I'm out there for a while, yeah, better. Have but, oh, here, since you brought this set up, though, see if, see if anybody else has had this experience. The most heart racing experience is when you put that boot on and there's a mouse in the bottom. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. That'll... That'll or pause. anything, or anything, yeah, anything that you think yeah. might be, yeah. And if you've had your boots sitting out at the bar, yeah, the chat, outside, whatever, and, and you go, oh, I'll just put them on, yeah. That gets your day started. Yeah, yeah, that's better than coffee. <laughs> yes, it is. So, yeah, excellent. Well, now we've got our our footwear news, so we'll we'll dive into the topic of the day, and and really. We've talked a little bit in the past before about warts and ringworm, and obviously as we come up on show season, there are cattle that will be traveling, going around to other cattle, and I think both of these are worth discussing because this is often a reason you, you may not be able to get a health certificate, you may not be able to get into the fair if you have either of these conditions. So Brian, I'm going to start with you, and I'm going to ask a little bit about ringworm and what causes it, what what would I expect to see if my calf has ringworm? Yeah, so, so just ringworm, right? Yeah, so ring so ringworm is is caused by a fungus and it <clears throat> so being a fungus as opposed to a bacteria it's a little more hardy little more hardy in the environment it passed from animal to animal either through direct contact of the animal or through contact so if I brush an animal or I put a halter on an animal that has ringworm I can pass it to another animal so cleaning of uh, the veterinary term we use is fomites, but it's anything that can, any solid object that'll transmit, it'll carry the fungus from one animal to another. So, oh, and what, what would you see? Yeah. Well, yeah. So what we see with ringworm, uh, the reason it's called ringworm, it's not a worm, but the reason it's called ringworm is we see circular patches of hair loss. And so that's the ring part. 
Yeah, and and they don't have to be circular, but a lot of times they are circular, and they may be in different areas of the body. And the the interesting thing is, under that hair loss, the skin looks normal. It doesn't look. It doesn't always look inflamed. It may not look too damaged. You've got some hair loss there. Need to distinguish at certain times of year. You will have animals that have things like lice that are rubbing, and typically those will be spots that they can get to and rub. Ringworm can be anywhere. Is that right? right? And actually, in, especially in show animals, but because of the way it's transmitted, we usually see it on the head and neck. That's kind of the most common, but it absolutely can occur anywhere. Uh, but those, like I said, they're you're right. They're not always circular, but a lot of times you'll see these defined. And you can see multiple ones, too. It's not just one patch. You often will see multiple ones. So if I have a show calf, and I and I identify some ringworm and, and county fair season's coming up. What would I do about that now? So the and the topic really it's not my favorite to talk about because any veterinarian that's had to deny that health certificate probably has that same. It's not a fun experience. So that what I always tell people is if you think you are seeing a lesion, even though it's very very small, like you know even something dime size is about where we start to like notice them. If you see it, talk to your veterinarian. Just like, what should you do? There are a couple different treatment options, but yeah, I, talk to them as soon as possible because, because it's, it's a slow growing and slow dying. It, it takes some time to kill these things. Yeah, and it's the fungus we can kill, but it takes a long time for the hair to regrow, and so they can't have the lesion for them to be admitted to the fair. So uh, it's one of those things you really have to jump on them early. Because if the hair's not there, no fair. No fair. There you so go. Yep. You've got to uh, have time to get it done. You can certainly treat them, but if you have also sunlight, getting them out, doing some of those things, so talk to your vet early on. But prevention's really the big deal, Brad. And so keeping, don't don't share halters. Don't share equipment at the fair. Like, don't do that. And even just being in those environments, like you said, direct contacts can be enough. And so um, if you're bringing animals and mixing them, I mean, all the good biosecurity things matter. So this is an exa- <clears throat> so kind of a question for you guys. An example that's not fair calf was I had a set of stalker calves that had, it was this early March and it was wet conditions and had a lot of ringworm on those calves. And and I was asked the veterinarian about it, and he said, oh, don't worry about it. You get them turned out to green grass, and, and it'll go away. And, you know, to Bob's poise point, green right. grass is magic. Magic but and sunshine. What's in, what's in there that's, that's really— I, I think it may have to do as much with the sunshine as anything. Uh, but you're out grazing. You're out—you you're, know, you're not in a—it's not winter, so it's not cloudy, and it's not, you're not in a shelter. So sunshine really will clear it up. And, and we do talk about it more with— with uh, show calves and things like that because it is contagious. I don't want to go from one farm to another. But in a group of stalker calves, turn them out for a while. It'll clear up pretty quick on its own. Well, and, and Brian talked about I mean, you talked about the brushes and some of the other stuff. But if we have our show calf in a barn and it is rubbing on the side of the wood post, if it's rubbing somewhere else, that also serves the same transmission mechanism that you talked about with a brush. So with those stalker calves, you get them out on green grass and they spread apart and the sunlight hits it, it does go away. Same thing would happen with the fair calf. The problem is we're on a timeline. Right. It, and that's the big problem. It's, you know, in the show calves, I'm, I'm not, it's not a fatal disease by any means. And so I'm not, I'm not worried about the overall health of the animal. It's just, it's enough to keep them out of the fair. And for soccer calves, no, no issue. Like I said, they'll disperse out. No problem. I also want to talk about the other big one, warts. And so warts typically, Bob, I'm, I'm going to look at you. What's, what causes them, 
And, and I'm not even going to ask you what you would see because you would see warts. You would see warts. <laughs> and, and it is caused by a virus. And more often in youngish animals, so these calves post-weaning but not a year of age, would be a, a time when we see it most frequently. And the again, the issue is it's transmissible. It can go from one animal to another. Um, and so the maybe a little easier to treat or similar to ringworm in that basically you just remove them usually. So it might be as, as easy as pulling them off if it's very small or you might have to you know, cut them off or a veterinarian might have to cut them off. And usually they don't come back. Sometimes they do. But again, we want that done well ahead of the fair if we're talking about show animals so that they have time to completely heal and be ready to go to the fair. So again, it's don't wait till the week of the fair to make these kinds of observations. Be watching your calf. Uh, intervene very early and a lot of times we can if we've got several weeks there there's not really a it will likely clear it up long before the fair but if you wait till the week of that makes it a lot more difficult you can't speed up the healing process and like no. you said treatment treatment's not much harder than ringworm but this would look better much faster than most cases of ringworm yeah probably so and and i guess kind of one other point too with both of these things if you have an animal that has them isolate them from the rest of your animal, like quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Get them, get them moved out. And remember that that environment that they were in, the ringworm's probably still there after they have left it. So I think, I think this is your point there, Bob, as we get into show season, observe, know what you're looking for. Either of these cases, ringworm or warts, you catch them early. The treatment's much better. They can recover faster. You can get back in the groove of things. So keep an eye on them and tell your kids as you're working with your kids, what to watch out for. Yeah, exactly. The other topic I wanted to talk about a little bit today was we've talked about the benefits of, of AI and synchronization. We talked a little bit about that with Sandy Johnson a few weeks ago on what some of the advantages were. But I wanted to ask you guys, what do you see if I'm considering I'm a commercial operation, I'm front end loaded, I've got my cows in good shape, they're really doing pretty well, I'm selling my calves at weaning. Should I consider AI for my operation? Why or why not? Well, I'm going to give you a little more background here, too, because you look at the history of AI. The very first artificial insemination that was done was done in cattle, and, and we're quite good at it, meaning that the fertility from an AI mating is as as good as a natural service mating. Where, which, where was the first AI? Now, now you got to tell us more about that. Well, I, I just gave my whole information. It was <laughs> meaning that it was done in cattle before horses or other, I mean, at least commercially. So it, we've been doing AI for quite a while in beef cattle and it works really well. The interesting thing is some of those other, uh, so, so swine, for instance, didn't start doing AI as early in the swine industry. And it has really taken over commercial swine breeding to a, a majority of commercial pigs. I mean, a vast majority are bred by AI now. And on the dairy side, of course, a vast majority of pregnancies are our artificial insemination. On the beef cattle side, not quite so much. And that has to do with some of the differences between dairy and swine operation. Basically, you have a, a group of females being bred each week, all 52 weeks of the year, right? In beef cattle, we're trying to breed them all at one time. So even a moderate-sized beef herd is a lot of females to breed in one day versus a very large swine operation or very large dairy operation. There's only a few cows or sows to be bred each day. So it's a different situation and probably why AI is dominant in both dairy and swine and kind of a niche use of technology on the beef commercial side. I was completely listening to you 
but also the first AI occurred around 1899 or 1900 by Russian scientist E.I. Ivanov. Really wasn't used much until the 50s and 60s in the beef cattle world. But just to, just to follow up on your on oh, your story, I appreciate that. So. so so we talked about again what what it is, why it's used, why it's not used. So but I want to go back to should I use it on my operation? Mm-hmm. If so, why? And a couple of weeks ago, Philip, you said, hey, you get you get to pick from bulls of high enough genetics. I may not have those available to actually buy as a live animal and put on my operation. So is that one of the advantages for me to use AI? It could be. Um, it could because you could improve your genetics of your herd um, quicker that way, possibly. Um, there's some trade-offs that you were mentioning um, before we started the podcast. If you're selling calves at weaning, some of the traits that you might focus on are not going to really pay off. But if you're retaining ownership, that can make a big difference. But um, I think, too, a, a big advantage of it is to do some crossbreeding or even just selection of different traits in that I want more maternal traits for heifers that I'm going to keep. And I'm going to, I've got a bull that's going to be my cleanup bull that's more carcass and growth focused. Yeah. So I could bring in, especially if I want to, if I've got a herd size and I've got one sire for that breeding group, I could actually bring in genetics for heifers that then I could save in the herd and breed back to my herd bull, right? So I don't have to switch out my herd bull maybe as often because I can save some heifers back or my herd bull battery. And I think that's a that's a great point. Your other point is maybe I want to consider some other marketing alternatives. So if I've invested in genetics, whether they're live animal genetics or AI genetics, I want to have a marketing opportunity that lets me take advantage and get paid for that, which I may not have if I sell at weaning, mm-hmm. right? depending yeah. on who and how I sell. So Brian, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about tightening the calving season. How do we get the calving season tight? And is AI, is this, does that play a role there? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, what we mentioned there was it, we're trying to front end load, I guess, our breeding season. And you could certainly do that with natural service as well. So I don't, I don't know. I think AI, AI has a place there. You know, and we've talked in recent podcasts about, you know, some of the, some of the downsides of AI. And and so if you're not ready to overcome the, basically the training, or you don't have a resource where you could hire out that, I think you could, you can shorten the calving interval without using AI. For me, I, I think one of the benefits of AI is it can be a much more known commodity than just buying a you know, if you're buying a bull, you probably have some data, but you're really judging a lot on phenotype. But with an AI sire, there's probably a ton of data. There's there's one of your big values. So not just is it good genetics or not as good genetics, but you're saying accuracy, the accuracy side of the equation in the prediction. And if we look at EPDs, this bears out. You look at the accuracy on a yearling bull, we kind of know what's going to happen. You look at the accuracy on an AI bull that's been tested in thousands and thousands of progeny, we know what kind of calves are going to come yeah. out. So I, I think that's a big one. Yeah, I think AI reduces the unknown of the genetic. You know, Bill Phillip mentioned that it, you know it's a way to improve your genetics, but and I agree with that. But I think it reduces what my uncertainty of that. That's that's what I think the big benefit is. Yeah. So when I've seen commercial beef cow producers that have really utilized AI very well, they've done some of the things that both Philip and Brian talked about. It, it allows them to maybe focus my AI sire on a particular outcome, oftentimes heifers. So I get my replacement heifers from those AI matings. It allows me to you know select bulls with really known genetic offspring. So I know what the offspring are going to be because I've got a lot of 
a lot of offspring out of that bull uh, across the country. And and those are some of the real values. And, and I would say that in the right situation where, um, again, a herd is already pretty front end loaded, it allows me to get a, a nice early breeding into those, I mean, in the first few days for a, a pretty good percentage of the herd. And that has some advantages. So there are some advantages. The synchronization and AI that we use in beef cattle has some advantages. It has some costs. And I think it certainly should be a tool in your toolbox that you consider. And then you're probably going to need a team of people because that's usually hiring in a, a breeding company or something to help you do that. And then get, get the piece of paper and pencil out or the spreadsheet and see if it makes sense for your operation. And it very well might, or it might be something that you want to think about in the future. But some of these things you can't put in a spreadsheet, right? So, I mean, the predictability, no, you can't put them all in a spreadsheet, Bob. You, you, make your spreadsheet better. <laughs> just make your spreadsheet better. But it, but the some of the labor that comes along with AI, you could plug in what it costs to do it. But then the observations and the intensity, there's potentially some value on the back end when they go to calve. If I've got a bunch of them calving in a short period of time, I know those days are going to be pretty intense, but that could be useful even though they spread out before they calve. But I think good, good thoughts there relative to AI. And now as we move to the next stage, thinking about that early pregnancy period, and, and there, are, there is a time period where we have some concerns. So very early after a cow becomes pregnant, she has to recognize that she's pregnant, and that may occur 14, 16 days after she's bred, which is a, after that point, she could actually lose that pregnancy and it would be hard for us to tell if she didn't get bred or if she lost the pregnancy. But I wanted to ask you guys, what are some things that we would do on the prevention side to make sure none of those bad things happen? Well, I start with just the basics and make sure that the cow is, is healthy. And what does that mean? Well, she's in good body condition. She's in a good environment and she's, she's eating a, a really good ration. And if that's green grass, that's awesome. But basically just you take care of those basics and that, that's a lot of it. But then the other thing, a couple of the infectious diseases that we talk about, we have pretty effective vaccines for. You know, two examples would be IBR virus and BVD virus. We have pretty good vaccines for those, but those are viruses that can cause an early pregnancy loss or even a mid-pregnancy loss. And so a well-vaccinated herd for those viruses really does help reduce the risk for those infectious losses. Oh, go ahead, Brian. Well, and I was just going to throw in on that on the last point with the vaccine is the vaccines are good, but we have to use them correctly, right? And so we have to, to they work through the animal's immune system. So we have to give them enough ahead of time that the animals are able to build up some immunity. So it's it's not just that they're effective, but they have to be used effectively. So and they don't work against everything, right? He mentioned a couple of right. the viruses, but one of the one of the things that can cause early pregnancy lost is trichomonas fetus or trick as it's commonly referred to. So how do I make sure that's not going to be a problem on my operation? Yeah, so so trick is a is a parasite essentially and so and it's it's transmitted during reproduction. So the bull transmits, the cows may have it, the bull may have it, but it's transmitted during reproduction. And so in many states, it's a reportable, it's a testable, reportable disease. And so uh, what we do is we test the bulls. And we often do this in conjunction with their breeding soundness exam. We basically take a, a pipette, which is a small plastic tube. Uh, we scrape the inner surface of their sheath because that's where the parasite is carried, try to pick up some skin cells off the surface. Um, and then we look at that 
Um, there's a couple tests, but it essentially involves either a, a PCR, which is a test for DNA, or we just do a microscopic visual exam and look for the parasites. So you can't see it unless you send it in, you do that test, right. and you would test bulls before the breeding season. Yes. This is something, and we're not going to have time to go into the details about it, but talk to your veterinarian. Should, do I need to be concerned about this? Is this something that I need to do? A lot of it depends on how those bulls are handled because they're going to get it from breeding. So virgin bulls, not, or, not an issue. Yeah, or, where, or if you've purchased bulls where they came from, there are parts of the U.S. where trick fetus is more prevalent yeah. than other places. So all that, have, all that information matters. May have been tested or not. So the, the other thing was we think about early loss, and Philip, you, you have spent some time in different parts of the country and I want to ask about one of the topics that comes up, and it's and it's heat. So do, so if it gets really hot, and we'll have that happen sometimes early in the breeding season, if it gets really hot, is that is that going to affect our pregnancy rate? Is that going to affect some of the cattle and their nutrition? Yeah, I'll say yes. I mean, it'll it'll affect their their pregnancy rate. It's going to affect their the cycling in the cows. It's going to affect sperm production in the bulls, um, and it's going to affect their the nutrition in the way through their appetite. If it gets really hot, you know, they're going to back off feed. They're going to, not going to graze as much during the day. They're going to spend more time in the shade, those kind of things. And so their intake will decrease. And so then nutrient intake could become marginal, probably not deficient, and but it could become marginal. Intake, activity, nobody feels like doing anything when it's hot. Yeah. One of the things that, that we see on, on the dairy side, really clear evidence that hot, humid conditions decrease fertility. And that might be don't get pregnant at all or lose that early pregnancy when it's really fragile. Beef cattle, I agree with Philip that, yeah, I think that does affect it. Maybe not as much in beef cattle as in dairy cattle just because they're not lactating at the same high level and some other things. And so it's certainly something to consider, but we can have pretty successful breeding in July or so, which is pretty hot. With the one exception, I did spend some time in Missouri, and when you're talking about fescue, it seems like all these problems that might happen in high temperatures definitely happen on on a high endophyte fescue type of a problem. And so know your forages and know your region. A a summertime breeding in the Sandhills of Nebraska is probably different than the a summertime breeding in fescue country. Because that endophyte, and we've talked about that a little bit before, that endophyte will make them a little bit hotter. They're not going to be able to thermoregulate as well. And so certainly if there if there's damage that occurs from the heat then it's going to be exactly worse. Yeah, yeah it's going to be worse. And we're talking about early, early pregnancy loss more on a herd basis. There are a, a lot of other examples and a lot of other causes of in, in an individual animal. And so we've seen cases where things like anaplasmosis doesn't directly cause an early embryonic loss, but the cow becomes so sick that she, she physically can't support the pregnancy anymore. And so, um, you know, and from an economic basis, obviously the herd level problems are much more of a concern, but if you're doing preg checks or you notice a cow that comes back into heat and it's an individual or a couple individuals, there are lots of things that can cause those kinds of losses. Absolutely. If you get the, you get that high fever, you get any problems like that, especially early in that pregnancy period. And so as you guys outlined, there are several things. We've got to prevent what we know to prevent. So you talked about some of the vaccination tools, you talked about some of the testing, managing when that calving season is and certainly keeping an eye on the cows to see if they're breeding back keeping an eye on the bulls we'll continue talking about this as we go through the season we certainly appreciate you joining us today if you have any 
questions, comments, topics you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us on Twitter at the underscore BCI, or you can shoot us an email at bci at ksu.edu. Thank you.